This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Hello. My name is Emily Zinn, and I'm the Associate Director of the Carsey Wolf Center, and it is my great pleasure to welcome Elizabeth Gabler and Larissa Paiva from 3000 Pictures. We've just watched their wonderful adaptation of Lady Chatterley's Lover, and both of them are UCSB alumni, so we are very delighted to welcome them back to campus. Olé, olé, olé. So I have a few questions for them, and then we'll take some questions from the audience. So my first question is for Elizabeth. So Elizabeth, why Lady Chatterley's Lover now? I know this the novel's been adapted at least a dozen times, including twice by the BBC, once in 2015 and once in 1993. And, of course, Jolie Richardson, who's in your film, was Lady Chatterley in that 1993 we're, movie. We're scene. very proud of that. That's, that's really <laughs> cool. That's a cheat. That's really cool. So why return to this particular story now? Well, one of the great things about my life was that I was an English major here at UCSB. And I think that that part of my education prepared me for my career more than anything that I could have possibly even imagined. And one of my favorite books and one of my favorite authors was Lady Chatterley's Lover and D.H. Lawrence. Um, Marissa and I were working at 20th Century Fox, and we found out that this project was in development and needed a new home. And mm. it had always been something that had been very daring to me as a book, very challenging, and, and I felt like it was something that could be retold in today's terms with a very feminist lens. And as my younger counterpart, Marissa, <laughs> also felt in, a diff- in, you know, in her own way, she felt a passion to retell this story as well. And we had the most amazing partners uh, David McGee, who we had worked with on Life of Pi, uh, was the screenwriter, and we were very excited to reunite with him and felt as if today's vision of this movie could be told more from Connie Chatterley's point of view as a woman who wanted to seek her own vision and her own voice and her own freedom for her life and not be entrapped in what was that society's norm. And, and so we felt like through Emma Corrin's brilliant talents, we could mm-hmm. bring that vision to audiences today. Wonderful. Yeah, you have an amazing team on this film. <laughs> we it's did. We had a great team. people. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you some more detailed questions about those fo- folks. But first, Marissa, I want to back up a little bit and ask if you could talk a little bit more about the work of developing an adaptation of a literary text for film or TV. Mm -hmm. So what do you, as 3,000 Pictures, how do you describe what you do? I mean, we we work a lot with literary adaptations. I think Elizabeth, as an English major, has embedded that in all of us. And and I wasn't the hugest reader, but I was a film studies major here at UCSB, communications major. And, um, you know, the power of bringing a story to audiences that could watch it rather than read it is always something that we found the power of the synergy between those two things. Um, You inevitably cannot put everything from the book 
on screen. So we try to honor the fandom and we try to honor what's important to the author. Now, obviously, D.H. Lawrence is no longer with us. So, um, you know, we tried to honor everything about what we knew of him and what, what he wanted from this. But as far as our other authors, they're normally very involved in the process and very much, um, I didn't work on it for the company, but a cheerleader from the sideline of where the crawdads sing this summer mm-hmm. we had come out. And Delia Owens was very much a part of that process. Sure. That's always an important part for us is to have them involved and on set and supporting it and knowing who we're casting as their characters. And the very first project I worked on was Ramona and Beezus, which was <laughs> the Ramona Quimby series. Oh, and, and Beverly Cleary was 93 when we made that. And I'll never forget when we went to show her the movie for yeah. the first time at her um, retirement home or where she had retired with her husband who was uh, ill at the time. But um, we did a screening. We did a screening in Carmel for for her to see it for the first time, and she said, "You know, it's one thing that I wrote it in the book, but in my mind, it's what my kids did that inspired what I wrote." And you know, it's layers for authors, and so you have to you have to honor what the authors. You know, these are their babies, and it's really important to us. And so, but again, it all can't live on the screen, so you have to be a little. A little ruthless at times. So you see yourselves as collaborators in bringing their their text to the screen and adapting it in a way. For a new medium. I mean, yeah. they've been really, a lot of our authors have been really understanding about that. It's a new medium. It's different to read it than to see it. And mm-hmm. that's, that's sort of a guiding principle for us. Right, right. Yeah. That's great. So I'm interested, um, coming back around to Elizabeth, then you mentioned working with David McGee. So, and I know you'd worked with him before on Life of Pi. So can you talk a little bit about why he was the correct person for this particular project and what he, what vision he helped you put together for it? Well, the project was in development. It had sort of a, a weird little circular life. Uh, it was actually in development at Columbia Pictures mm-hmm. when we were at 20th Century Fox. So David was already the writer okay. of the screenplay. Um, but that was one of the things that drew us to the project and obviously to work with him again. Um, we worked on it briefly at Fox. And then when Fox was sold to Disney, we left, went to Sony, and brought the project back with us. Mm-hmm. So it sort of had, it had its sort of little roundabout life. Um, David is a very skilled author at adaptations. Uh, he has done from Finding Neverland, which is the reason that we wanted to work with him, with Ang Lee on Life of Pi, and many of his other, his other work has been a very, very skillful and surgical way of approaching an adaptation. And a lot of times when you see a film that's based on a book, you think it's a literal adaptation of what the book is. But in reality, if you go back and look at the book, There are structural changes. Mm -hmm. There are very, very judicious edits, as Marissa was just speaking of. And a lot of times there are the the challenges of bringing a character's voice that an author can do in prose to life on the screen in dialogue. And so all of those things, he's, he's one of those artists that's really capable of doing that in a brilliant way. So we knew that no matter what we asked him to do and when we went through every phase of the process of developing the project and into production that he was going to be right there for us. Mm-hmm. And he was. So, you know, he still will be one of our very favorite go-to but, writers. But I'll be clear, he, knowing him from Life of yeah. Pi, he's a dad from New Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> he did not let his kids watch R-rated movies at the time. 
in no way did I think he could write the sex scenes as you see depicted here on screen. And Those did. existed in the script with various detail. More, a more lot detail. detail <laughs> a lot of detail. And I called him and I said, you know, his wife's name is Pam. I said, has Pam read this? You know, I just, I, I, just <laughs> knowing him as a, this loving. This was a different di- side. It's a very different side <laughs> of him. He wrote the new version of Mary Poppins. Yes. And yes. Little Mermaid, the new, new one. <laughs> so this is not precisely Mary Poppins. It's not Mary Poppins Returns, no. Oh, yeah. my goodness. <laughs> but he's very, he's agile. <laughs> Very, very. That's where you can tell the skill is when you can cross that many genres and sure. do it so skillfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and enter into this very different set of experiences, right? Yeah. This sort of imaginative projection into, a, you know, a text that's about female sexuality, and mm-hmm. I think he did. He that was well. also very protective of some of the really strong thematic elements of D.H. Lawrence's novel, like the flame. Little Flame Burning, very, very, very strong touchstones for him that were important that we kept within the film. Finding ways to keep Lawrence's language intact. Because the the language in the novel, for those of you who have read it, is very archaic, I would just use that word, um, and very regional. And we obviously couldn't go that way to make the most accessible film for modern audiences. So uh, it was a combination of trying to keep the essence of, of what D.H. Lawrence was trying to say and and moderated into a more, um, I think, familiar language. Mm. And I think you were able to retain that a lot with the play with the accents, right, mm. where Oliver Mellers does all of that going back and forth between the really broad accent mm-hmm. and the more mm-hmm. cultivated sounding English, which he does in the book, right? Lawrence plays yeah. with that where Mellers clearly can manipulate the way his accent works. Yeah, for like I'll say Summit sometimes. That, like, and that was scripted, but Jack O'Connell, when he came on, Jack Jack is from Derby oh. um, in, in the UK, which is where Mellors is actually yeah, yeah. from. And it was really important to Jack to represent the working class, the upper class, the, the transition in between being, you know, an army lieutenant, that sort of thing. So Jack... That was really important to Jack, yeah. and that's all Jack. Because the accent was it. spot on. That's yeah. good to know that that really is yeah. just him him doing his mm-hmm. own region. I mean, his own version of his regional accent. Obviously, it's for a different era. But yeah, his yeah. rap gifts us were all Derby Football Club jerseys, oh. so he made it known that that's where he was from. Wow! Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's great. Well, I want to shift gears slightly, Marissa, and have you talk to us a little bit more about the visual sensibility of the film. Um, what do you think, um, you know, your director, Laura Claremont-Tonnerre, and your cinematographer, Benoit Delhomme, brought to the film in terms of the visual sensibility? What was important to you about the way this film is shot? I mean, so much about it is important to both of them, but I guess I could distill it down. Having have you guys just seen it? Is that the 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 difference of Ragby as sort mm-hmm. of Connie's prison, and then the freedom that she finds in nature was really important to Lore. And Benoit matched that. He's our DP, which for those who don't know, designs the shots most typically on set, and then there's a camera operator who 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 does the shots per per Benoit, and Benoit decided to operate also. So mm-hmm. in the sex scenes, when you see sort of floating camera, that's the handheld that we used all the time. 
and that's Benoit behind the camera. Operating so he knew exactly where he needed and, and, and had that comfort with the actors to be. And that was purposeful that we use the handheld in the Mellers-Connie relationship, that it was more free-flowing, that it was finding mm. itself, that it was in focus, out of focus, you know, and just sort of they're finding their relationship. And in Ragby, it's much more locked-off shots yeah. and panning and up and down. And, and that, that was very purposeful to represent... Um, again, what is most important to us is representing a character's journey and Connie's journey in particular in this, which is very important to Laura to tell the story from Connie's journey. So everything everything went back to how she was feeling in the moment. So again, Ragby was sort of became this prison with this Clifford. Sort of static space, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and nature became this free-flowing element that, that she was able to express herself as freely as she did with the character of Mellors. So oh, that, the great. camera's meant to match that. That's wonderful. And let's, let's stay with the, um, what you were talking about with the shots in the forest. Cause I think, I think you're right to talk about the contrast between Ragby and the forest, but then the other contrast I was really noticing was the contrast between the sort of beauty in nature around Ragby and then the, you know, the, the mines and the industrial setting mm-hmm. just sort of creeping in. And my favorite moment when that happens is when Connie and Clifford have gone up on that high hill to sort of survey Mm -hmm. the terrain. And he's talking about, you know, Ragby and the need to carry on. And you just hear that booming from the mines (laughs) in the background. Yes, the booming from the mines. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I mean, that was, again, purposeful. Um, And, um, you know, you're making a movie about three people and one person you very quickly want to not be part of it. Um, yeah, you, you're rooting for, for, for Mellers. And so you want to be able to make Clifford an aside. Um, and so Laura, Laura had this dichotomy between industry and nature. Again, nature was the freedom for Connie industry was what kept her trapped. And so you see that not only in the mines, which are represented from the Mm -hmm. booming and up on the hillside, but you see it in the house when Clifford is having the discussion with Bolton about the radio and the obsession about the radio and Mm -hmm. the modernity of the, of the radio. You also see it when he upgrades his wheelchair from a push wheelchair to a motorized wheelchair and the obsession with getting that to work. So the, the mines were Clifford's Clifford's way into that industry, but really the industry was meant to represent Clifford's, you know, everything became not about what's here and now with Connie as his wife and became about the radio, the the motors, you know, everything that, that obviously she didn't relate to, but things that you know, there was there was And upgrading the mines so this they could future. make fuel. Yeah. yeah, so so Again, that was very purposeful in terms of painting Clifford's character, and that's what Laura was very excited about, was sort of in every scene after it became clear that they were not going to connect at Ragby as husband and wife, that the industry through the mines, through the radio, through the motors all came in sequentially. And straight out of Lawrence, right? I mean, this is, this is the dichotomy he's painting, too, and so I just loved the way the film was able to to do that visually and also do that with that wonderful, you know, sound in the background. Mm-hmm. So 
Thank you. We have a lot of we have a lot of great, great bloopers of Jolie Richardson riffing off what the radio is saying because obviously when you're shooting, <laughs> there's nothing on the radio, and she was calling out soccer scores and stuff like that. So it was very fun. Yeah. Oh, she sounds like a hoot. Oh my goodness. All right, so I want to turn back to you, Elizabeth, and mm-hmm. I want to talk about. Um, the fact that, of course, the novel was very famously banned for obscenity, um, and the material you're working with here is very sexually explicit. So can you talk a little bit about the challenges of putting together this film that is that is very sexually explicit material and trying to you know, put it out there for Netflix? Well, we made a specific <laughs> choice to make this movie with Netflix because of the fact that we wanted to have the freedom to be as expressive as we could be and make people feel comfortable about seeing it, especially as we were just coming out of the pandemic, as opposed to risking only a theatrical release, which Mm. would have been our choice at Sony. Um, And I think we made the best choice by doing what we did. We had amazing partners with them. But the biggest goal, I think, for us as a filmmaking company was to make certain that the scenes with the sexuality were visceral and romantic and classy. That was really important to us. We wanted them to always be expressing something more about the emotional journey that the characters were going through as opposed to just being a sex scene. Right. And that was really important for us, that each one was a progression in their relationship or a demonstration of the character's journey through life and their love affair and their relationship as they became just a passionate affair, which was basically born out of Connie's need for another human contact to actually getting to know each other as people and falling in love with each other and then realizing that ultimately they wanted to spend the rest of their lives together. So that was really important for us that each one of those scenes was a stepping stone on that path. Right, and the diversity of the sex scenes you have in this mm-hmm. is fabulous. And then also, you know, I, one thing that I find wonderful... Diversity, there's a good word. Both, both with Lawrence and with your film adaptation is that there's this element of silliness in the whole thing, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's the running around in the rain and the putting the flowers yeah. on each yeah. other. and um, That was really important to Laura, was sort of the playfulness of, of especially the dancing in the rain. That was a huge scene for Emma and and for Lore to capitalize on the freedom of that. Like Elizabeth said, we made this during the pandemic, and we sent Laura the script when she was eight months pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, living in L.A., it was it was the height of the pandemic. It was like With June of 2020. Too. It was her wow. first kid, and, you know, everyone felt separate from each other. And We never even met her except for on Zoom. On Zoom, yeah. So, so until, until we went to set. But, but it was definitely meant to be sort of, a love letter, if you will, back to intimacy and touching yeah. and, and, and all of that, that, that can be sort of, we talked about the, you know, slightest moments that aren't sex necessarily, but right. a hand graze or when she's pushing, you know, the motorized, you know, wheelchair from the back and she kisses his cheek and just sort of, um, things we were deprived of. Even holding a little chick. 
Yeah, you know, yeah, holding holding trembling. the chick and trembling, and so we talked about a lot of things about touch, which was definitely influenced by the pandemic, and would have been a different version of the movie. Should we not have all gone through that together? Just that everybody was so craving yeah. that that connection. Absolutely. And yeah. No, I love that, and I just love how the the film does portray the the playfulness of the relationship, which I think is really well. We did a chemistry read, which you normally do with two actors you know, in a room together between Jack and Emma, and it was over Zoom, which I don't even know why that was a thing, but it was the only way we could do it. Right. And you saw, you know, they recorded, you know, minutes of it to send to us to see their banter and playfulness with each other just in communication, and you could tell off the bat they had chemistry, so we could only imagine once they were able to get in a room together what we would get. That it would turn into something yeah. wonderful. But so, we did have to really carefully calibrate what we actually shot to what is in the movie <laughs> for ratings and things, you know? I mean, there was more than <laughs> what we have in there now. So it had to be cranked down just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. There, was, there were other versions. <laughs> we have those saved. Yeah. Marissa was there the, for all of it. The extended <laughs> version someday. I saw the dailies, but I was already in California. She was there in England. Uh, Wales, actually. So I also appreciated that the film sort of nods to the banning of Lady Ch- Chatterley's mm-hmm. lover by specifically referencing James Joyce. Mm-hmm. And I wondered, you know, where that came in in the process, who was sort of introducing Joyce into the into the ecosystem. I remember exactly, actually. it's We give tons of notes on scripts, right. obviously, and some are larger thematic notes, character notes, and some are super tiny page notes. And that was a page note that McGee, David McGee, put in uh, a reference to a band author at the time, and I said, I have no idea who this is. Maybe Elizabeth does, because she's an English major. James Joyce? No, no, no. no it wasn't James <laughs> Joyce. No. It was someone else. Oh. And I said, I have no idea who this so is. So let's not go to the obscure and, band okay, author. And I let's said, can to... we put someone that me, Marissa Paiva, is going to understand? And he said, yeah, I'll look for a, a replacement. And you know, that we do, we give notes all the time like that. You know, we, we are the audience, you know, yes, we're overseeing these movies and giving notes as studio executives with experience in this, but ultimately we are the watchers of this. And so if, if I'm not going to understand the reference, I would think some other people are not also. The average educated person (laughs) is not going to recognize this. The non-English majors. Yeah. 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 Well, I loved adding in the Joyce reference. I think that was really... No, it's actually something that comes up in all the reviews. It's just the James Joyce reading Oliver Mellors. They yeah. do. They mention that. that yeah. He actually yeah. Reads. Well, just as another another author who's who's invested in thinking yeah. about female sexuality and getting banned. Yeah. 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 No, I think, it. you know, nodding to a history of books being banned for mm. sexually explicit material seems really appropriate mm-hmm. here. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, okay. So I also was interested, I was going to direct this question to Elizabeth, but actually either of you can take it. Um, we were, we're talking about that process of adaptation and where you're um, moving a novel toward what will work on the screen. And so I thought in that light, it would be good to talk about the opening because I love the fact that this opens, you know, the novel itself opens and Clifford is already injured, whereas mm-hmm. this opens with a wedding and particularly the moment where the 
Fathers are talking about the need to procreate and have an heir for Ragby, and then also that fabulous backdrop where they're standing against a backdrop of Venice.、Mm. So, can you talk a little bit about why why open the film there and what it does to it to have it、um, to have it open with a wedding? Going in, dare well, we discuss budget? Well, <laughs> that's one reason, but but ultimately. That's the only way that you can get a lot of backstory that you, a lot of times, will read in the course of a novel, into the information that the audience starts with to begin with. It's kind of one of the crucial rules of, I guess, adaptations, really, because、sure. you've got so much backstory and you've got to let them know where they're starting from. Where in a novel, you can have a character's thoughts.、Uh, Dramatic descriptions and a lot of other things that fill a reader in on what's going on in the story, but you can't do that in a film. So to not understand where they were in their lives when they started out—that he had—that he was not disabled when they first got married, that the change happened when he went to the war—all that you have to do in a really concise and、mm-hmm. close period of time. And we didn't want to just have. There were a lot of. Versions of this where we had like him going off to the war in the trenches, the 1917 version of it, you know, and we didn't really want to repeat that. It had just come out when we were and was to great critical acclaim and success、right. when we were starting to get ready to make this movie, and so we basically thought, what's a way to do it that we could do, give the audience context for where the story is starting and where we have to begin. Where we can get to in a、right. really fast way. No, I love that. And starting with a happy Connie and Clifford,、mm-hmm. yeah. right? I mean, then it gives you this pathos of when. And then you meet her sister. You see her father. And there were just like a lot of. There was a lot of work done there to try and get that all across in a very short period. Right. Reference the rationing. Reference the need for the air. No, bang, bang, bang. Yeah. Give, yeah. A, give a sense of the time period. Yeah, yeah that's、right. important. And then also creating that lovely sense of closure with the Venice. You know,、mm-hmm. we get fake Venice、mm-hmm. at the beginning. I know. Real、yeah. Venice at the end, which you know Clifford、mm-hmm. still doesn't go to.、Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, lo- I love that. That. And then I'm also interested in similarly the ending, the fact that、hmm. you end with getting them physically back together,、mm-hmm. that the novel closes with just a letter,、um, and you never get them physically back together. So yeah, the ending is sort of a suggestion that they will be together, which in a movie is just like. So we. We went for it, and we decided David. David always had a version of them getting together at the end. It was never just a letter being written. It was always them physically together.、Um, and obviously, she's she's pregnant. Her haircut is different. You know, we tried to give a sense of of the passage of time.、Mm-hmm. We wanted to miss Mellers as much as she has. You know,、um, so those were sort of manufactured things that not manufactured because Lawrence had them in the text, but、right. just. In terms of a visual or how an audience would have think think about it, right? The haircut、yeah. is really、mm-hmm. is really、yeah. striking, and then just the fact that she is the one traveling, right? He's in this one spot, and she goes to him. She's, you know, well, being a modern woman was really important to Emma and to Laura. Our director、mm-hmm. was to represent, you know, if if Connie felt that strongly about Miller, she would go and get him,、mm-hmm. you know, and that was. That was something that was important to both of them to represent that that Connie would never be a passive character in a in a period story, regardless of of the times or or the expectations for Connie. That 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 Connie would always make the choice that Connie wanted to make. 
Right, right. And this movement through space that just represents that, you know, taking the car and going. I, yeah. I love that. So, and this is a good segue into talking a little bit about Emma. So I, you know, I, I just thought their portrayal of that ca- character was so amazing. And so I was hoping you could talk a little bit about Emma as a collaborator, but also about the idea that you have a non-binary Lady Chatterley and what that what that means. So, Marissa, do you want to take that? You want to talk a little oh, about Emma? Uh, yeah. I mean, Emma's obviously most recognizable as Diana from The Crown. So not someone that shies away from a tall order and mm. not someone that shies away from... Um, it's not so much present here in our curriculum, but in the UK, a book that everyone reads. Yeah. So certainly certainly they did in their, in their, in their high school equivalent of our high school experience. Um, and Emma went at it, you know, full force and, and they just decided that they were going to represent it as a modern woman, mm-hmm. obviously playing a woman, you know, though, though Emma identifies a different way was recognizing Connie as a woman. Connie is a woman in the 1920s who's married. You know, Connie is a woman who we want to represent the modern woman for all the same plights that the 1920s represented of control of women's bodies and all of that that are still present now. And so it really wasn't it wasn't that big it wasn't that big of a discussion with Emma in terms of of their identity. And obviously, they they speak to that much more eloquently than I ever could. But it really was about finding the right partner with Emma to represent mm-hmm. that. Um, speaking to a question you had earlier about the intimacy, it was very important that what they showed, Jack showed, mm, and yeah. we made sure of that. And so a lot of the nudity scenes, as you see, um, represented both of their bodies in a way that was Yeah, there as... was a lot more full frontal male nudity <laughs> than you usually have. Well, he wasn't Tell shy me about it either. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that was purposeful, that, that Emma... Um, with their own journey with identity, wanted to make sure that that Jack was Jack was showing what 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 they were putting themselves you know on display for as well. Yeah, so. I just I love their embodiment of the character in terms of just like the sort of both the sort of awkwardness in these social situations and then just sort of stomping around the woods in these, you know, I feel like the way Emma wears those period clothes is just fabulous. Oh, Emma, like that scene of them jumping in the water was completely Emma and Jack, like at the end of a day and it was freezing water in Wales. (laughs) They wanted to jump in and we're like, can we roll cameras on this? Because this is a great, like cute moment between you guys. So, um, but that's very much Emma's like a find a watering hole and, and they'll jump in it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. No, this just did seem like a good, a good group of good group of people to work with. <laughs> yeah. So, um, okay. And I'm actually going to stay with you and talk a little bit about being on set. Cause I understand you were on set both yep. in Wales and in Venice. And can you talk a little bit about the experience of what you do in your role on set and then, you know, what it was like being in those two spaces with this film. Yeah, I mean, the role, on, the role for studio executives in general is to make sure that the, the filmmaking group, and I don't just mean the filmmaker mm-hmm. as the director, but the filmmaking group is being supported both financially and creatively with what we need the movie to be. And what we need the movie to be means 
both to sell the movie, market it, um, what we all intended it for, for it to be, you know, what we all signed off and hoped for it to be. So the role from when we're not on set is to sort of check in with those on set and make sure that that is all happening and everyone's happy and mm-hmm. merry go round. When you're on set, the role becomes the day-to-day, a location's compromised, you know, an actor may have an issue with a line of dialogue that you need to talk through. I mean, there's a lot more sort of plan of action on the day that becomes a lot different. Immediate fighting fires. Yeah. And in Italy, (laughs) there was always, I got a guy who could take care of that, Ah. you know, so that was always the answer if there was... You know, we shot on the main canal in Venice. Right. It's beautiful. And they shut it down for seven minutes, an incremental seven minutes amounts of time. I still don't know how we got it done, but we had a guy named Marco, and anything you asked him, he said, I got a guy who could do that. And I just <laughs> said, okay, great. So that was He's sort Marco's of, it's, it, it depends. It's a living, movies are like living, mm-hmm. breathing things. And in this instance, because we were shooting in Wales during a pandemic, it was already isolated. We were shooting at the, the estate you saw in the film, both the house and the surroundings is all the same estate. I thought we'd be cheating Connie's path from the house down to Miller's hut. In fact, it's exactly the path. You walk down the hill, you cross those stones, and you're at the hut. Oh. So it's all geographically logical. And you're just used to cheating way more things in the film. Like we feel like we know how to go there now after having watched it. Yeah. And sort of, again, thematically for Benoit, uh, RDP and for lore, the, the going from uphill to downhill was very important in terms of class. You know, it was her, her leaving this castle, quite the castle ivory tower, if you will, and, and going down to Mellor's. And so I think that, Again, these are living, breathing things. There's an actor that's going to have a note. There's a director. There's a you know costume designer. There's going to be a costume that breaks. There's going to be a costume that doesn't look right there's on camera. Be mud swamps there's, in the grass. Yeah, there's 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 living, breathing things about movies that you have to change on the day. That as studio executives, when you're 12 hours away from the action on a different time zone, you're just not getting those those things. Those minute by minute updates, yeah. but you're right there so that you can. Yeah. Help sort things out. And again, yeah. the Italians did it right. I mean, not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Wales may be more complicated. Well, just, yeah, the Brits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, they were lovely. But yeah, the, huh. the house we shot at had never been shot at before for film or TV. So we had looked at the house that Atonement had been shot in and other films you may have seen. And those are available. But we decided to shoot at a house that had never been shot in before. So inevitably that comes with growing pains. And to what extent were you... I'm, to what extent did that house come with those furnishings, and to what extent were they? Was it None of it. By? No. Okay. So, so it, I mean, the rooms were right, and then we just kind of stripped them all of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, the room where Connie retires to, and it has that blue and white wallpaper, um, and the, the she cuts down the photos. Takes down the photos. Yeah. Great scene. So yeah. we completely re-wallpapered that room. So what's funny is we did all the changes to the house, and then. The owners, of course, kept it all because it was like huge upgrades. We repainted, we re-wallpapered, and we did tons of stuff for their house. So they're thrilled. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> well, I also love knowing that the geography of that works just with the extent to which you get Connie and Mellor's lingering at that border, right? The border the between the The gate was actually and, yeah. there. I mean, it, uh, again, like very 
we normally cheat all those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we spend a lot of time there in the yeah. film. And that's yeah. great. Oh, good. Yeah, there's an encampment yeah. up there. Yeah. So, Elizabeth, I want to go back out to a more macro level again and ask about how you decide whether a particular text might be good for adapting into film or TV. What, what are you looking for? What's, what kinds of things tend to speak to you? Well, I think we are very much in sync after working together for many years um, <laughs> about this very subject. But ultimately, we look for, obviously, a storyline that can be adapted. I mean, there are many books that are absolutely wonderful, and it's very difficult to translate that author's prose into cinematic form. Um, So you need to find something where you can actually find a very clear concept, a sellable concept, an idea that makes sense to an audience that's going to go buy a ticket or turn on to a platform to watch this this story. Uh, Also, I think we always look for a very strong emotional journey for the characters. Mm. That's really important that we connect to the characters, that we, we find characters that are interesting. We tend to not go to the more dark and bizarre stories in our tastes at 3,000 Pictures as we did at 2,000 at Fox before this. Uh, so a lot of the stories that we've told are deemed untellable, like Life of Pi, mm. for example, which seemed to be... Uh, the impossible one. <laughs> but for us, it was the story of a young boy who had survived great tragedy and lived alone in a lifeboat with this tiger. Yeah, it just uh, happened to have a tiger in the middle of and, it. Yeah. <laughs> and, but transcended dialogue and language and could be basically what we felt was the first international family film mm-hmm. because you didn't need words. It was all there in the, in the imagery. And, of course, one of the other things that draws us to material is will this attract a filmmaker that we really want to work with. And mm. that has been really our, I think, touchstone is to work with filmmakers that we believe in and that we are inspired by. And we have been successful in doing that through the years. And and so it's filmmakers, actors, composers, <laughs> everybody. You know, it's just you, you just want to bring the best of the best to what you do. Sure. And, and have a great time doing it and be uh, successful at it. thing <laughs> also that, you know, having worked for Elizabeth for so long is that we really only want to put things out in the world that are good and that inspire and that are about sort of the triumph of the human spirit. And, you know, even from the micro, like an Indian boy in a boat with a tiger, I mean, you know, that seems very small, but the message was universal. And the same thing applied to Hidden Figures, the movie we did. That, you know, black woman working at NASA mathematician three things i am not but that was something that we felt had a universal appeal that would mean something to people and that people could relate to and such an important story to tell universality of 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 stories that we that have been deemed unmakeable or very tough or god this one's a really tough one um We've always sort of seen the light of where it could touch many more lives than even than, Devil Wears Prada, which everybody thinks was so easy. That one was so hard. <laughs> I mean, here we are, all these years later. Every time I turn around, we're celebrating the the fifth anniversary, the tenth anniversary. The fifth, you know, it's just, but it, it's lived on and it's it stayed there. But we bought that as a fifty-page partial manuscript mm. with a title, and we didn't even know what the rest of the story was going to be. But this, the concept. The characters and the title were so strong 
that we knew we could figure it out. And yet, at the time, it was a nail-biter all the way down to the first weekend that it was released. Mm. Well, and it, it worked out. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> you're knocking on wood. you got already knuckles all the time. Lighting so, candles here and there. I'm going to turn to audience questions in just a moment. But before I do, the one last thing I want to ask the two of you is what else is... Um, what else can you tell us about what you're working on? What is what is on deck now for three thousand pictures? All right. Well, we've been we've been working for <laughs> almost nine months to close the rights to the life story of Bruce Lee, which will be directed by Ang Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's reuniting us with our our dear friend and um, about to be announced, so you guys are probably the first people to actually hear it, but we had a breakthrough today with the uh, chain of title. We're hoping this is all going to happen, and we are very excited to say also that Ang Lee's son, Mason Lee, will be playing Bruce Lee. Uh, He's an actor. He was just nominated for an acting award called The Golden Horse in Taiwan, where he's been working, and so hopefully... By the end of 2024, we'll be able to bring that to cinemas. That will be a theatrical release internationally. Um, we're also working on Kazuo Ishiguro's novel, Clara and the Sun, which also has reunited us with our friend Jim Mangold, who did Walk the Line for us mm. back at Fox, uh, who's writing our script for us right now. We have a magnificent limited series, which is also at Netflix, uh, Marissa's Passion, Girl A, which is a book written by a first-time novelist in the UK, Abigail Dean, and a wonderful filmmaker, Johan Rank, who you will know from Chernobyl, the Mm. this magnificent HBO series that he did, uh, is our director, producer, and guiding light. And that right now is in development, hopefully to hit the the platform next year. Um, what am I, we so this really represents your move into limited series television, right? Yeah, because we're working yeah, on, we've sort of... been passionately digging away at Joan Rivers' life story, <laughs> a, a project called Can We Talk, which her, her daughter, the wonderful Melissa Rivers, is producing for us, and we have a great script on that, we're just about to get a director on that one, so we have all different kinds of projects, um, and... The foray into television is really exciting. Yeah. I mean, we read books and projects all the time, and to be limited to just the the, the film medium, whether it's streaming or theatrical, um, we kind of got sick of that and realized that if we love something and it's a better limited series, why can't we do that? I mean, I watch everything. I voraciously you know, go through everything, and I just would love to have a great limited series that all my friends go, oh, my God, I couldn't stop binging this, you know. Another set of tools for you. That's great. Well, thank you guys for talking to (laughs) me. And now the next thing we want to do is turn to take a couple of audience questions. Uh, What was something that you wanted to put into the movie from the book, but you couldn't put in the book that you would like to share with us? (laughs) I can take that one. Yes, please. (laughs) Um, In the book, uh, Connie and Mellors refer to their areas as John Thomas and Lady Jane. Um, and they refer to each other's genitals that way quite a bit. Um, and it's sort of a cute bantery thing with them. And it just 
didn't work. <laughs> it's, it's hard. I was wondering about that part. It's really hard not to make that cringy. So that's a, <laughs> that's a D.H. Lawrence like classic thing that we wanted to find it was kind of a in there way a to work. It was in there sort of in voiceover a little bit. The actors really loved it, of course. <laughs> actors love that kind of thing. But um, you could just see people like squirming in their seats, like <laughs> hearing that. So that was this point about ratings and sort of making choices as far as we went with the sexuality here, as you saw, um, that, that, may have, that may have tipped the scales. So that, that is one classic. D.H. Lawrence thing that, that the we personification of genitals was yes. just a bridge too far. There just for Elizabeth and myself alone, the relatability <laughs> was a little odd too. So yeah. <laughs> All right, yeah. um, good question. I'm gonna read it off of my phone. Sorry. Um, for a film that was very pensive, like this one, it relies a lot on the unspoken features. I can definitely feel, you know, the life of pie touch of non-dialogue. To elevate emotion, I felt like that was done fantastically. I found the color choice and the use of color very poetic, especially the reds, the whites, the blues, and the black, just to see the progression of Lady Charterly um, in terms of her character arc as well as her mood. So I just wanted to know about how you went about using character through their objects and their relation to those objects for their identity for a film that's about relations itself. I think that's peak literary analysis. So I just want to know your thoughts about how you keep that literary form and analysis not only intact, but displayed so viscer viscerally sorry, um, through color and making sure that you keep that astute, I guess, thematic commentary within mm -hmm. your film. Probably take that. Yeah, you should because you know about the blue. Um, well, from a... From, from a cinematography standpoint, we've shot everything with a tint of blue, which you probably saw. So mm -hmm. the, the idea was to show a cooling, a cooling, mm -hmm. calming effect to those scenes with Mellers and, 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 and Connie, and that's where it's most represented in scenes with the two of them. Um, stylistically, in terms of you know, things that, that the heads of departments did to relate to the character, I would say that Connie's hair, if you notice, is up always at the beginning or when she's with Clifford and down when she's with Mellers and becoming more down. It's sort of half up, half down when they're sort of having sex the first couple times and then it's all the way down and then wet and down. Um, so that is certainly a purposeful choice from the hair and makeup department of representing Connie's emotionality of, of, of those progression of those relationships. Um, the colors she wears uh, from a costume standpoint is very purposeful. Um, she's in that beautiful red dress when she goes to the May Day Festival. Um, May Day was the mining, you know, the mining town where we got to see other people in the town. It's, it's sort of black and white. Everyone there is in very mm. muted colors. And she's in a red and meant to stand out and meant to be awkward. And, and, and she says that to Mrs. Flint when she meets her and says... You know, I don't, I don't really relate to anyone in this town. I feel like an outsider, and she's meant to. It's purposeful that she's in that bright red. Um, so the heads of departments were all very aligned from the cinematography to hair and makeup to costumes of, of making sure that we're representing all of the characters. Like I mentioned before about Clifford with his radio and with the motorized wheelchair, those objects, as you, as you asked about, certainly represented his progression and, and his devolve into the industry versus his marriage. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you all. Thank you for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. 
For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.